And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 30. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt series. This weekend, we're going to talk about deconstructing religion. Also, grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along part of the intro. To most people in our society, Christianity is religion and moralism. To most people in our society, Christianity is religion and moralism. If you can't show the difference between religion and Christianity, people will confuse, people will confuse morality with a changed heart. Religion is about morality. Christianity is about a changed heart, about a transformed heart. You gotta know the difference. A lot of people don't know the difference. Most Americans don't know the difference, and many Christians in America don't know the difference between the two. The gospel is neither religion nor irreligion, but something else entirely. It's a third way of relating to God through grace. So religion is about achieving our salvation. That's religion, it's about achieving, earning. Irreligion is just uh, rejecting salvation, self-discovery. I don't need God, I can do it on my own, I can find it on my own. But the gospel of grace is about receiving Receiving salvation, it's, it sounds pretty simple, but the problem is, is that as, as, even as Christians who have embraced grace, we tend to, to default to moralism quite regularly, as you will see as we work through this teaching here this morning. Jesus' teaching consistently offended the Bible-believing religious people of his day while attracting the irreligious. Now, the last few weeks, uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, Jesus' uh, spiritual baptism. His spiritual baptism prepared him for his spiritual battle that we talked about last week. Remember temptation, him coming and facing uh, Satan head on through the temptations. And so his spiritual baptism prepared him for a spiritual battle and then spiritual battle now prepares him for spiritual ministry, and he's embarked upon his ministry. He's prepared for that. So we talked about temptation, and now we're talking about religion because he gives us a real clear understanding of the gospel, and we see the religion and religious person's response to this message. And then next week, you don't want to miss next week, because we're going to talk about the dark side. Now, all of these are really related to our adversary and what he does, because I believe that Satan thrives in religion more than irreligion. Satan thrives in religion more than irreligion. So we got temptation, we're deconstructing religion here this weekend. Next weekend we'll talk about the dark side. We're really gonna talk more about the demonic, Jesus cast out demons. We're gonna try to understand, well, what is that about? What does that mean? How does the enemy get a foothold into our lives? We'll talk about that next weekend. But this weekend we're gonna ask the question, three questions, you can see it on your outline. What is the gospel? 
If we're going to deconstruct religion, we need to know what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Who is it for? Who is the gospel for? And what is the difference between religion and the gospel? Need to know the difference, and that's where we're headed. But before we take a look at this text and unpack these notes, we're going to pray. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. That song we just finished singing, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. You invaded our hearts with your love. And now we respond to you in love, in love with you. There is nothing more life-liberating and soul-satisfying than living in vital union and communion with you, our unsearchably great and unimaginably good God. Moralism is the default mode of our hearts. And even those of us who believe the gospel of grace on one level can continue to operate as if we have been saved by our works rather than the finished work of Christ. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would let us see, and not just see, but be seized by the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ transforming every part of our lives for our indestructible joy and your indescribable glory in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. So let me kind of set you up with this text. So Dr. Luke has so far given us plenty of evidence that Jesus is God in the flesh, the Savior of the world. And, and now, as we continue on through this book study, which is going to take us probably about 10 years to get through, um, I mean, it's a long study. It's a big book, but that's how we like to study here. We like to study through books of the Bible. We, we do some topicals, but we love our uh, work through books of the Bible. And so as we work through this, and he's already given us plenty of evidence that Jesus is God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, now he wants us to make Christ and to have Christ as a living presence in our lives. This is what I love about the gospel. The gospel is head sound and heart satisfying. It's both rational, so it's historical, evidential, and factual. That's what he makes very clear, so that we can have certainty in a world of doubt. But that certainty in a world of doubt is meant to, to help us to experience Christ as a living presence in our life. So it's rational, but it's also relational. It's also relational. And so here's, here's what we're going to learn from our text here uh, this morning. Three parts to the story. Jesus' sermon... And so he's embarked upon his ministry. He preaches this sermon, phenomenal sermon. And he, in this sermon, he defines his ministry and the gospel. So we need to know what the gospel is in comparison to religion. And the people's response to Jesus' sermon, they respond to Jesus' sermon and they go, whoa, great sermon, Jesus. Yes, we like that. That's wonderful. And then Jesus says, uh, wait a minute. Uh, I don't think you understood me correctly because you're way too happy, okay? And, and, and your response is way too positive, and so, so he says, so then he comes back and he clarifies what he says, and they are angry. They are ticked off royally, and they take him up to a hill and want to throw him off. You know, what kind of a, a greeting, uh, greeting committee is that for a church? I mean, you're going to see this as we read through this. This is a phenomenal story. It's really an interesting story. So that's where we're headed with this story. So let's begin chapter 4, verse 16. 
of, of the Gospel of Luke, and he came to Nazareth, this is Jesus, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Did you, you see anything pop out to you from that first verse, as was his custom? So what was his custom? To go to the synagogue every Sabbath. He, he went to church. He went to church with his family regularly. That was the spiritual discipline of Jesus's. And notice this in verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. By the way, this is before there was chapters and verses. You guys know that, don't you? We, don't always ha- we didn't always have in our Bibles chapters and verses. That happened about the 13th century. So it became defined kind of 13th to the 16th century. And so Jesus is not only did he attend church regularly, but he was very familiar with God's word. He really knew God's word, and so you see that because he was able to go right to this place. Now listen to the sermon that he preaches here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Stop there just for a minute. So what was he saying? What, was he, what did he mean by that? By the way, this is Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. So in essence, Jesus is saying, I'm him. This is me. It's talking about me. I mean, Jesus was not confused about his mission. He wasn't confused about his purpose. Now, there's a lot of people today that are confused about Jesus' mission and purpose, and you're gonna see that these people are confused about Jesus' mission and purpose, but Jesus isn't confused about his mission and purpose. He's very clear about that. He says, I'm the fulfillment of this. I'm the Messiah. I've come to do this. This is my ministry. This is the gospel. And notice this, verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And so he he realizes that they didn't understand what he had to say. And so he tries to clarify it here for them in verse 23. And he says, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So he's just saying, this is, these are the words that you guys are going to say to me. I know you guys are going to kind of bully me here a little bit and say some very unkind things to me. And he said, truly, this is really important, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What is he saying there? Are you guys familiar with the statement that says, familiarity breeds what? Contentment or complacency? Oh, yeah, we know this guy. No big deal. That's what he's saying. But he says in verse 25, but in truth, I tell you. Now, he's going to use two Old Testament stories that they're very familiar with. And this is, going to, this is what's going to rile them up because he's really trying to clarify to them. No, I think you guys misunderstood what I said. This is what I, I meant through this, this message, this sermon. And in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in uh, in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah, so this is God's man, this is a prophet of God, 
was sent to none of them, so was not sent to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, but only, that's important, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And then that's the first story. Here's another illustration, another story, just to make sure that they understand what he's saying. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed. So he said, God, Elisha did not go to God's chosen people, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now notice this. Here's their response. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That's what he was looking for with his message. It's like, ah, now you're getting it. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord to us. This is a great story for Sunday morning here at Desert Breeze Community Church. They're trying to kill Jesus. He's just now started his ministry. They're, they're actually getting what he came for, his, his ministry, and they're beginning to understand the gospel. They're all riled up. I mean, imagine our greeters here. They don't like what you say. We're going to take you over to the mountain over here and throw you off. And so that's just how we deal with people here at Desert Breeze. Is, is there a problem with that? It's biblical. It's right there in the Bible. I don't like your attitude. Let's go over here. I'm going to run over you in my car. I said, these people are pretty, uh, pretty violent. This is violent. This is rated whatever. I mean, this is, uh, this is pretty, pretty interesting stuff. So let's talk about this. So let's, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It is God's unmerited favor through the merit of Christ Jesus. This is what I love about the gospel. This is what captured my heart years ago. I've never been able to get over the gospel, and that's what it is. It's God's unmerited favor. How many want God's favor in their life? Show of hands, show of hands, okay. Everybody wants God's favor, everybody. I want God's favor. You want God's favor. But it tells us in James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's only two teams. The team that has God's favor and those that are opposed by God, really based on what the Bible teaches. That's, that's what the Bible says. You either, either have God's favor or you don't have his favor. And so the gospel is that it is God's unmerited favor through the merit, through the accomplishment, through the performance of, of Christ Jesus. And you see that, verse 18, he says, to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the poor, to the poor, that would be the humble, that would be one way of looking at that. And then verse 19, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's what he's talking about there. He's talking about the grace of God. Now, I've been meditating on this sermon this last week, and oh my goodness, it is a, it is a wonderful uh, text. And I would encourage you to do that. And there's time does not permit for me to go to all the details of what this speaks of and what this talks about. But let's see if we can do just a quick understanding of what the gospel is. So it's God's unmerited favor through the merit of Christ Jesus. Well, what is that? Well, here it is. It's, here's the next fill in the blank. Good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. And I've got plenty of cross references. You're gonna have to study that on your own. But th what this basically means is that there's a spiritual will, a spiritual wealth 
spiritual wealth that money can't buy in Christ. Does, it, does that make sense? So there is, there's something that we receive in Christ. It's, it's a wealthiness, a spiritual wealth that money can't buy. There's a, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that, that haunts me because I don't live even close to it. And so I want you to be haunted by it also. And so listen to what he says. He who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. The guys like him, they talk so awkwardly that it takes like a couple years just to figure out what they have to say, isn't it? <laughs> and so it took me a long time to figure that out, but when I finally figured it out, I go, I don't even live close to that. That hurts. That's hurtful, C.S. Lewis. So let me read it again, because some of you probably didn't get that. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. All the wealth in this world cannot add anything to your relationship with God. If you have God, it doesn't matter whether you have a whole load of money or no money at all. If you have him, you have everything is what he's saying. But the problem is, is that part of our, our sin, sin is not just breaking a bunch of rules somewhere. It's actually... Uh, one way of seeing sin is adding anything to Christ um, as a requirement for your happiness. I mean, yeah, I like Christ, I like Christ, I want Christ, but I would also like to have this or that or any number of things, and we tend to do that, and he's just saying, wait, 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 if you have Christ, you have all the happiness you'll ever need, and that's what he's saying when he says good news to the poor. This is a spiritual wealth that money can't buy. What is that? Here's what it is. It's, it's his presence in our life. It's his power. It's his peace that goes beyond understanding. It's pleasures. It's pleasures like nothing you've ever experienced in creation. Would you agree with me that there's a lot of pleasures in creation? And yet all those pleasures are are gifts from God and pointers to God, back to him who's the greatest pleasure of them all. And, and that's what he's talking about there. Okay, I, don't have, I could spend more time on that. I'm not. We've got to keep rolling here. And so here's the next one. Release to the captives. So good news to the poor. So we're talking gospel here. Unmerited favor. God's favor through the merit of Jesus Christ. Good news to the poor. Release to the captives. Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Actually, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That would be all of us. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And then it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death really means separation from God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this death and that he sets us free from through the gift of God is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So what that means is that he frees us from the penalty of sin. And that freeing us from the penalty of sin means that he sets us free from guilt and shame. So when he says release to the captives, he sets us free from guilt and shame. Did you know that most of your, your issues, your problems, most addictive behaviors, most OCDs and all that is really rooted in unresolved guilt and shame? Did you know that? That's what drives it. And so when we re resolve that in our life, it begins to transform us, and so it sets us free from guilt. Guilt is, is being troubled over what you've done, and shame is being troubled over who you are, 
And so the gospel is that he forgives me never to hold my sin against me, and he gives me a new identity of great significance. I become a child of God. That's phenomenal significance. So we got good news to the poor, release to the captives, and then we got sight to the blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4, we talked about it last weekend where um, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Jesus said about the religious folks of his day in Matthew 13, chapter 13, verse 13 and verse 16, he says, seeing, but they don't see. Hearing, but they don't hear. What was he saying? He said they have physical sight and, and hearing, but they don't have spiritual sight and hearing. He's talking about something that goes much deeper than the physical. It's spiritual. We live in a world today that says, show me and I'll believe. And God says, believe and I will show you. Isn't that interesting? And so you will seek him and find him when you seek him with all of your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, it's, without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to him, if you want relationship with him, must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And what happens when you begin to put your faith in Jesus through the gospel, sight to the blind, you begin to see the invisible hand of God, you begin to hear the inaudible voice of God, and you begin to experience the inexplicable but undeniable presence of God. It takes you into a whole different realm. We're gonna get into that realm a little bit more next weekend, talking about the dark side, that spiritual realm. But here's the, here's the fourth one, fourth point, freedom to the oppressed. So you got good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, and then freedom to the oppressed. So what is that? That almost sounds similar to that first one where it says release to the captives. Well, somewhat, that one is free from the penalty of sin. This one is free from the power of sin. In other words, no sin or suffering is a match for God's redeeming and restoring grace. That's what he means by that. Now, now listen to this. There is a, a love, there's a joy, there's a peace in Christ that all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. And it can only be found in Christ. All the money in the world, all the success in the world, can't give it to you. All the suffering in the world can't take it from you. That's what he's talking about. Freedom to the oppressed. That's amazing. He's talking about grace here. The doctrine of grace tells us, really, that no person or situation is ever, ever hopeless. If we have Christ in our life, listen, what I've told you here, just what he's kind of proclaimed to us, quoting Isaiah, that right there is enough that if from this point on, your life goes from bad to worse and it never gets better, that's enough to face anything. And you won't care if you understand the implications of this because you have him. All the suffering in the world can't take this from you. 
That's good news. And it's amazing. This is really amazing. Now, we're going to look at who it is for in just a minute, but notice their response to this, verse 22, and all were speaking well of him and wondering at the grace the gracious words which were falling from his lips and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Now, they liked what he said because they were filtering it through their religious worldview. Basically, this is what they were thinking. Well, okay, this is the Messiah. He's saying that he's the Messiah. We're the good people who are being oppressed by all those bad people out there. We're the good, they're the bad. And we're the ones the Messiah is going to save. Now, Jesus knows that they don't understand uh, really the gospel and what he's proclaimed here and what his ministry is all about. And you know why he knows that they don't understand? It's because they like his sermon. And see, the gospel message is, is a very offensive to religious people. Let me say that again. The gospel message is very offensive to religious people because it says you can't earn salvation. All your good works can't earn right standing with God. That's what the gospel message says. And so the gospel message is very offensive to religious people, but it's also very offensive to irreligious people who are going the self-discovery route because basically it's saying you can't find salvation. You can't find lasting meaning, hope, and happiness apart from God. Because the gospel message basically is saying God, God speaking to us, he says, you were created by God, for God, to give glory to God, and the only way you're going to f- satisfy the deepest longing of your soul is by living for his glory, because that's what you were created to do, is to know him, to experience him in your life. And, and so that's really the essence of the gospel, and so in verses 23 Through 30, Jesus clarifies who he is sent to. I came for the poor, is what he says. Who are the poor? The poor are both religious and irreligious who have hit rock bottom. Now, Jesus was certainly more appealing to the irreligious, but those were the irreligious that really hit bottom because there were other irreligious out there that didn't like him didn't like what he was about. But, but it's actually both religious and irreligious that hit, hit bottom. So let me ask you this. Uh, maybe you can talk with the person next to you if you want. Uh, to ask them, which one of those two tend to hit bottom quicker in life and, and call out to Jesus and come to faith in Jesus? Is it the religious or the irreligious? Ask the person next to you real quick, see if they know. So, okay, quick show of hands. How many would say the, the religious, the religious are the ones that tend to hit bottom the quickest and, and turn to faith in Christ? Okay, okay. And how, how many would say the irreligious, the irreligious? Wow, okay. More of you. I think I probably did a better job explaining at this service because the last service it was more split. And so, actually, it was, I would say, I would agree with the second group, the irreligious, because they tend to hit bottom. They realize they go out and they try everything or whatever it is. They break all the laws. That would be more of the irreligious. And then they come to that emptiness. In fact, the, the perfect example of that would be in the story of the prodigal sons found in the 15th chapter of Luke who came to the, back to the father before uh, the first who would be the younger son. He came back. 
But the older son was still on the farm, though he had left the father a long time ago. And, and it kind of, the story ends in a cliffhanger. You don't know whether the older son is ever going to come into the party or not. And he's more, he would represent the religious, and the younger son would represent the irreligious. And so that's, that's it. It's really, but it's actually both who, who hit rock bottom, both religious and irreligious who have hit rock bottom. Now, so who is this, who is it for? Who is this gospel message for that we just described? In verse 18, only the spiritually poor and especially the actually poor. What I mean by that is the down and outers, the marginalized, the underdogs, the outcasts of society. Because they tend to be the ones that come to faith in Christ before the wealthy, the affluent, the people that seem to have it all together. I don't need Jesus. So you can kind of see that. The, the religious tend to think that I can earn it and I'm a good person and, and uh, that's just how it is. Let me, let me ask you this question. This is an easy question. If you were to ask most Americans if they're going to heaven, how would they respond? What would they say? they say, of course I am. And you'd say, okay, so why do you think you're going to heaven? How would they respond? Because basically I am a... Oh, you got it. And then what you should say to them is like, you haven't read the Bible lately, have you? You don't know the gospel, do you? That would be a good response. Maybe not, okay? Depending on the kind of relationship you have, maybe you can't handle that quite yet, but at some point you want to say, you don't really understand the gospel though, do you? And, and Because the gospel says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death. And it's only through the gift of God that we can have eternal life. And that'll rile them up. You know, that, and that's what's happening in this story here. And so what Jesus does, he gives, he gives these two illustrations from the Old Testament. These, these folks knew the Old Testament, so he's going to say, okay, I, I think you guys misunderstood me here. And I just want to make sure that you understand this story, because you're way too happy right now. And so, I kind of do that around here. And that's what I love about our churches, because sometimes if I think you're way too happy, I think you misunderstood the story, and I want to make sure that you're really mad at me when you leave here today. No, actually, the Bible, as I've said, my job is to com- comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's disturbing the comfortable. He's actually helping them to understand what he's saying here. And so he gives these two illustrations, the, the widow of Zarephath, so in verses 25 through 27, he gives the, the illustration of the widow of Zarephath. I would encourage you to read that story on your own this next week as you walk through the growing notes, but that's found in 1 Kings 17, 8 through 24. It's a really fascinating story. And then he uses the, the next example is Naaman, and that story is found in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 27. So let me just give you a, a brief summary of these two lives. So the widow of Zarephath was a poor Gentile woman, idol worshiper, living outside of all religious and moral standards. Naaman was a wealthy, idolatrous, immoral, murderous, enslaving leader of Syria, a fierce enemy of the nation of Israel. So these two people are are absolute spiritual outcasts. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is saying, the only people I'm coming for, so this gospel is only for these people, for people who acknowledge that they are spiritually and morally bankrupt. That's who the gospel is for. And there is nothing they can do to achieve a right standing with God. In fact, look carefully how he pushes this. 
he is very careful to say, I don't want you to think that I'm coming also for spiritual outcasts, but only, only. Look at, see verse 26 and 27. Did you notice that? I, I made that very clear as I was reading. And Elijah was sent to none of them. Who's them? It's the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. God's man doesn't go to them. He goes, but only to Zarephath, the widow there. And then in verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time, notice the contrast he's making. They're, they're, very, they're very religious. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. He's making that that really clear. So, so, let's, so who is it for? Who is the gospel for? Let me go through a list here. Here's the next fill in the blank. People of different ethnic backgrounds. People of different ethnic backgrounds. The widow is from Zarephath, modern day Lebanon, Naaman from Syria. Now neither part of God's covenant people Israel. And yet that's who God sends his prophet to. And Jesus is making a point with that, who the gospel is for. And so, so what he's saying, this has been true from the beginning. This is who God comes to rescue. And he's making that very clear. And then the next one is people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. The widow is poor and Naaman is wealthy. So lest you think it's only for uh, poor, that is as it relates to, to money, economics, poorness, this guy's wealthy, and yet he's spiritually poor. You guys know this. You guys know this, that you can have all the money in the world and still be empty on the outside or in the inside. You can have all kinds of stuff on the outside and be empty on the inside. You guys know this, don't you? Yes. All the money in the world will not add anything to Jesus. Your emptiness on the inside will never be remedied by, by something in creation, only by the Creator, only by the creator. And so people of, of, of different socioeconomic backgrounds and then people of different political backgrounds. I like that. Is there a lot of craziness going on politically, would you say? To say the least? Listen to me, it's gonna get worse. It's only gonna get worse. And that's why we need to be focused in on the gospel. The solution is not found in politics. Do you hear me? The answer is not politics. We want to have good politics. But listen, the first century church had horrible politics. They're persecuting Christians. They're throwing them to the lions. And they turned their world upside down because, not because of politics, but because they proclaimed and demonstrated the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how they did it. Okay, I started kind of preaching a little bit there just on that point, and I didn't mean to do that. I got on a soapbox a bit, but that's okay. I'm going to get on one in just a, a few minutes here as it relates to that. People of different political backgrounds. The widow was an outsider to the nation of Israel. The Syrians were fierce enemies of the nation of Israel. But notice, here's the next one, number four, people with dark past and current struggles. Really what we're saying is just uh, the non-religious and very moral people, people that really struggle in their lives spiritually. 
the widow is an immoral idolater starving from a famine, and she's gonna, she actually loses her son. Naaman is a ruthless killer who has leprosy, which is really, leprosy is used metaphorically in Scripture as uh, sin, just as leprosy uh, physically eats away at our, our bodies, our, our, our skin. Um, leprosy, sin, eats away at our lives. It's destructive. That's a little bit of the picture there. But well, this is what's fascinating. Throughout the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus, in every case, listen to me, in every case where Jesus meets a religious person in a such as a sexual outcast, Luke 7, or a religious person and a racial outcast in John chapter 3 and chapter 4, or a religious person and a political outcast in Luke 19. The outcast is the one who connects with Jesus, and the religious person does not. Jesus says to the respectable religious leaders of his day, and I quote Matthew 21, 31, the tax collectors and the prostitutes enter the kingdom before you. So remember the little survey I did? Who gets into the kingdom first? Who's the ones that come to their kind of rock bottom and turn towards Christ? It's the irreligious. The irreligious do before the religious because there's something about religion that keeps us from Christ. And, uh, and we're gonna see that in, in, in just a moment. Now, I wanna read to you a quote. This is from Tim, Timothy Keller's book, Making Sense of God, and it's in a chapter uh, titled, uh, really, How the Gospel Gives Us an Identity That Won't Crush You or exclude others. Now, when we talk about identity, what we're talking about is where is your ultimate meaning, hope, and happiness in life? Our tendency is to put our ultimate meaning, hope, and happiness in our ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, political backgrounds, religious, spiritual backgrounds. We do that. That's misplaced identity. And it creates a mess, as we see here in our culture today. So listen to what he says in this. If I find my identity in working for liberal, political, and social causes, it is inevitable that I will scorn conservatives, and the same goes for conservatives regarding liberals. In fact, if the feelings of loathing or, or hatred toward the opposition are not there, it might be concluded that my political position is not very close to the core of who I am. I'm, I'm not taking it serious enough. I'm not finished reading here, but I need to stop there just for a minute. Um, I, I, I mentioned that our political climate is really out of control, and it's going to get worse it's flat out gonna get, it's gonna get horrible out there. There's so much hatred. The reason why you have so much hatred between the conservatives or however you wanna call it, whether it's the Republican Party or the, the Democratic Party or whatever, why is there so much hatred is because it's idolatry, folks. We've made our politics our primary identity. 
And so you know that because what happens is that you, you deify certain individuals and certain policies and certain principles and you demonize everybody else that doesn't fit those. And, and, it, and so it fires you up emotionally. It's got too big of a hold on your life. That is not the answer. It's not our politics that's going to save us. I'm just say that again. And I think that we need to be good citizens and we need to vote and we need to stand up for what's right. But that's not what's going to save people's lives. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's, here's what we should do. As there's so much hatred being spewed back and forth by both sides, both conservatives and liberals, that we gospel lovers filled with Christ, we should let our light shine before men so that they can see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven and show them that the gospel so transforms our hearts that we can even love our enemies. And they will, yes, that's worth applauding right there, okay? Some of you are going to go, yeah, 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 yeah. That is, that's what we should be doing. That in this spewing of, of, of venom back and forth that we say, wait, 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 here's really the answer. This is what you're longing for. Only Jesus can do that. Only in the gospel of, of Christ Jesus. And, uh, and so, okay, I, let me continue reading the quote, Okay. Okay, so that's just our politics. Listen to what he says. He goes on, he says, if my identity rests to a great degree in being moral and religious, then I will disdain those people I think of as immoral. I mean, I could talk on that just for a few minutes. In fact, I am because this is the last service and I can just go on and on (laughs) and on. (laughs) Go ahead and lock those doors right now. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. But, but here's the deal. Have you ever seen those, uh, those guys that picket these uh, military uh, and they claim to be Christian and they're, very, they're despicable? They're just hateful. See, see the, problem isn't, the problem is that they don't understand the gospel. They do not understand the gospel. And the gospel is yet to really invade their hearts. Because that's not going to make you... It's not going to make you hateful. It's going to make you more loving. And you love your enemies. Listen, we serve a man who died for his enemies. That's the gospel. It changes you. We're going to get into that. We haven't got that far, but we're going to get in there as we will look at the contrast between religion and the gospel. Okay, I just had to say that. I didn't say it in any other services. And so you guys got the little extra credit there, right there. <laughs> and so, so, so you, you're, going to disdain, you're not going to disdain people that are Im- immoral because you were immoral and you've been redeemed and now you want them to be redeemed too. And you still struggle with your immorality. We all do. We're, we're all sinners saved by grace. So that changes us in how we respond to people. And then he says, if my self-worth is bound up with being a hardworking person, I will look down on those whom I consider lazy. As the postmodernists rightly point out, this condescending attitude toward the other is part of how identity works, how we feel good and significant. I'll talk more about that as we work through this. And so here's, here's the answer. It's the next fill in the blank. So who is this for? Well, people of different ethnic backgrounds, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people of different political backgrounds, people with dark past and current struggles. All you need is need. All you need is need. You want to know Christ? You want to receive the gospel? You want to have God's favor in your life? All you need is need. Most people don't have that because we're too filled up with ourselves. It's called pride. 
We misplace our identity. We build it and put it in anything and everything other than I need you, God. I trust in you. I look to you. You're my source. You're my identity. All you need is, is need. And the gospel will always cause offense because it shows us having a need we cannot meet. Accepting Jesus Christ requires humility because you're admitting that you can't save yourself by your own works. And this infuriates religious people. It's impossible to meet the real Jesus and be indifferent. You either are offended or you bow down in worship and wonder. Okay, so why it causes a riot or revival? Here we go. You guys ready? Buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. So here's religion side. By the way, everyone, everybody look up here just for a minute. Everybody look up here. So here's the deal. All of us tend to, by default, we fall on the left side of the column on the religious side. And so you need to be aware of that. We all tend to do that. Even those of us that have embraced grace and understand that you receive, you receive salvation through the finished work of Christ, we still tend to fall prey to this religion. And so, so here we go. Religion is a morally restrained will by fear and or pride. The gospel is a supernaturally transformed heart by God's love. Now listen to me. This will get a little, little thick here just for a minute and you need to understand this. When we use fear and or pride to get people to do good, we promote self Selfishness. We promote selfishness because fear and or pride is also why people do bad. So if you take a bad person and try to make them good and you use fear and pride to motivate them, you haven't dealt with, with what is fundamentally wrong with all of us. It's our self-centeredness. It's our selfishness. You use fear, God's going to get you. You better get your act together. That's called moralism. It's called religion. All you've done is taken a, a bad person and made him good for the wrong reasons. Or you use pride. You don't want to be like those losers over there that live that way. You want to live like the winners. You can win like us. We're the winners. That's, that's called pride. That's called pride and, and fear and Fear and pride are no way to motivate. And if you listen carefully, a lot of churches use fear and pride to motivate people to do good. The gospel humbles us because Jesus had to die for us. That deals with our pride. And it invigorates us because he wanted to die for us. That eliminates our fear. Nothing destroys pride and fear or self-hatred like knowing that Jesus died in your place for your sins because he loved you. It's not a morally restrained will. It's a supernaturally transformed heart because your heart is smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and you are never, ever the same. See, that's the gospel. Your heart is invaded with Christ and he, he has rescued us and he has reconciled us to the Father and he redeems us. And so... Then the next one is, so religion is, I obey, therefore God owes me. You can see why it kind of ticks you off if things don't go your way. I obey, therefore God owes me. Gospel, I obey because I forever owe God. 
I'm smitten, I'm captivated, I'm overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory of the cross and how he, he's given his life for me. And in fact, so disobedience is even responded. So here's the interesting thing. So you can actually have a person, you can have two people sitting next to each other on a Sunday weekend service and they both come to church, they both read their Bible, they both pray, they both drop money in the box but for two totally different reasons. One is doing it, they're obeying God because God owes, God owes me, I want God to owe me and the other one's doing it because they feel like they owe God. They want to honor God. They want to do it for his glory. And it, it also puts uh, disobedience. So when, when the religious person disobeys, their religious remorse says, I, I broke God's rules, while gospel repentance says, I broke God's heart. I trampled on his love and wisdom. And so, religious person is sad because of the pain my sin has caused me. A gospel person is sad because of the pain my sin has caused God. I don't want to dishonor him. I dishonored him by what I said. I'm so sorry. I didn't want to dishonor him. And I said the wrong thing. I, I did the wrong thing. And so, please forgive me. So that makes a difference. Here's the next one. Entitlement. Religion is about entitlement. Gospel, it stirs up within you wonder and gratitude. So we get angry when we feel God owes us a better life than we have. If you give to God to get from God, you're just giving to yourself. Did you hear me? If you give to God to get from God, you're only giving to yourself. If you say, hey, I believed in God, I trusted in God, and he didn't come through for me. I've heard people say that many times before. Well, you only trusted God to meet your agenda. Here's the acid test. You really understand the gospel. Is that you have a wonder, a gratitude, an indebtedness to God that suffering can't take away from you. No matter how bad it gets in your life, you're just so thankful that you have him. You love him because he's bigger and he's better than anything in this life. And you're beginning to understand who God is. Okay, bad circumstances. So a religious person in bad circumstances, they get angry. And they look to either blame God or they blame themselves because they didn't live up to the standards so they could receive God's blessing or they blame someone else. But the gospel person is in bad circumstances. They suffer well. 2 Corinthians 6.10, it says, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So there's something really interesting. And I've, I've got a front row seat and I see people do this all the time. We've got people in our fellowship and I know that, those of, that there are those that are really going through difficult times right now. And yet I've seen this sorrowful and yet rejoicing. It's not sequential, it's simultaneous. It's not that you're sorrowful sometimes and sometimes you're rejoicing, no. But it's smack dab in the midst of sorrow. There is a rejoicing, there is a hope because of what you have in Christ. You're still sorrowful. I mean, there's some horrible things that happen in life and to us. And so that you grieve that and yet in the midst of that grief, you have a God who loves you and walks with you through that. He loves you. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. And that's what, what the, the gospel brings. Suffering reveals what we are really trusting and hoping in ourselves or God. Gospel faith is purified and becomes beautiful in the same way that gold is purified and becomes beautiful in the furnace of suffering. First Peter 1 
six through seven. And the more, the more certain you are that God is for you and with you, the less suffering will be overwhelming to you. I mean, do you know that? That no matter how dark it gets that he is for you and he's with you, he will never leave you or forsake you. You've never been more loved. He's not gonna abandon you. He gave his son for you. He gave his son for you. He's not gonna abandon you. He rescued you. He took care of your worst problem. He'll take care of your lesser problems. No one has ever loved you more. He came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. That means even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulties, but it reveals where are you trusting? Are you putting your trust in yourself or your circumstances or the people around you? Or are you gonna put it in God? Oh my goodness, suffering gives you opportunity to make sure you put your trust in, in him. And if God is your exceeding joy, Psalm 43, four, then you can lose earthly joys without inordinate anxiety, anger, and despair. Here's the next one. When you're criticized as a, as a religious person, you're gonna be defensive. Oh my goodness, I lived there for years. I hate to admit it, I was there for decades. My wife could not criticize me because my goodness, I'm perfect in every way. How dare you? How dare you talk negative about me? I mean, I am, aren't I? Please tell me I am. No, I, I, that was crazy. My sense of my, my, it was my morality was that my identity and having it all together and I've got to have it all together and therefore when someone attacks that through criticism, I mean, it deflates you. And so that's religion. Criticized, you become defensive. When you're criticized to understanding gospel, you're gonna become teachable. If you are a child of God, you don't lose your status if you have a bad week, okay? You guys know that? You don't lose your status just because you have a bad week or, or bad day, bad month, bad year. To be a Christian is a status, it's an objective legal position. It means to be a child of God. You either you are or you're not. There's no try. There's no try in that. Either you are or you're not. If you're a child of God, he's got you covered. He can take care of you. When you fall down, get back up, run back into his arms. Run back into his arms. You've got to do that. The gospel gives us the ability to think well of ourselves without being proud and to challenge ourselves or to be challenged without being crushed because our identity isn't in our having it all together. It's in the fact that we're children of God and we have a perfect record with him because of what Jesus has done. So that you become teachable when you're criticized. In fact, you ask for criticism. Honey, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I, how am I as a husband? How am I as a dad? How am I as a, as a person? Help me out here. I know I've got blind spots. And, and so you even op you're open for that. That's the gospel. See, we need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail, but even more so when we succeed. Because here's the next one, is that if, if, not, if we're not careful, it leads to God, uh, the... Religion is superiority or inferiority. We become superior or inferior based on what team we're, we're part of. If we're part of the winning team, yeah, those losers over there, it creates the superiority, inferiority. This is ethnic, social, political, or religious idolatry to where in the gospel it's a humble confidence. My identity is in Christ Jesus who died for his enemies. The fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate 
Pharisees. Let me say that again. Some of you need to write that down. Go home and meditate on it. Because I don't think you got it. Because you think that other side is despicable. And you get on the internet and you post all kinds of stuff to show them you guys are on the losing team. We're on the winning team over here. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait. Time out. The fastest way to become a Pharisee is to hate Pharisees. You're just like them. See, the gospel gives you the ability to love even your enemies. Even your enemies. That's crazy. That's amazing. Here's what... Uh, C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, The Great Sin, he says, if we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. In other words, a holier-than-thou, sanctimonious, self-righteous, condescending attitude toward others is demonic. We're going to talk more about that next weekend, this whole demonic realm. Why is it demonic? Because it is full of pride and absent of God's grace. Here's the next one, spiritual disciplines, prayer. So prayer for a religious person, it's mainly list, mainly petitions. It only heats up in need. So the only time I come running to God, I start reading my Bible and praying when things are not going so well for me right now, so I gotta start reading my Bible and praying more. Well, I mean, certainly you need to do that, but why did you wait? Why do you wait until bad things are happening? You're missing the best thing about the Christian life, and that's God. Here, see, a gospel person, their prayer is mainly about love. It's more about adoration. It's just enjoying practicing his presence. You just love God. You just love him. You love spending time with him. That's the best thing about the Christian life. The person who spends time with God, the person who practices and enjoys practicing the presence of God, radiates his glory in a manner that is always warm and, and inviting, never cold and condemning. Cold and condemning is the religious side. Warm and inviting is more of the gospel side. And here's the last one. We're finished up here. Consumer, religion. It's all about consumer. Self-serving, self-serving. Gospel, covenant, self-sacrificing. See, nothing you do will ever exhaust his generous love for you. You are generously loved, therefore you will love generously. Self-sacrificing. Former slave trader and infidel John Newton wrote these words in 1773. I know you're familiar with these words. Everybody knows these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm, was blind, and now I, woo, yes, all by God's grace, by God's grace, by his amazing grace, there's not a life on this planet that compares to what we have through Jesus Christ, let's pray, so Father God, no words can fully describe our wonder and gratitude for what you have done for us you don't condone our sin or compromise your standard, but you instead have assumed our sin and incredibly sentenced your son to die in our place for our sins. Your holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are reconciled to you and redeemed. You have done what we cannot do so that we can be what we dare not dream, perfect before you. 
as your dearly loved children in whom you are well pleased. Make this truth real to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.